Shall we bow in prayer? Almighty God, our Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God of Israel, we thank thee for thy servant Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We thank thee for what he preached and for what he read. And we thank thee for the vital role which he plays today. And we, be we beseech of thee to grant to us now a concentration and an ability to enter into these matters whereby we can gain from them. And we desire that thou wouldst raise us in our day men who have great preaching ability, who have that same warmth and devotion, and who are used uh, to send forth this gospel of free grace even to the ends of the earth. We believe that thou art lighting a fire and that this shall not be put out that shall spread throughout the globe. Do we pray thee advance it in every country and bless our souls tonight as we turn again to these times past and seek to profit by them. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank thee for all that thou wert, for all that thou didst mean to our brother Spurgeon. And we pray that thou bless us likewise by pouring out thy Spirit upon us, even for thy name's sake. Amen. The relevance and importance of Spurgeon's Calvinism can be seen in many ways today. Just last month I was preaching in Cape Town, where the Reformed faith, or if you like Calvinism, is making considerable strides. And uh, one of the leaders there was rather concerned uh, because in the Cape Argus, the leading secular newspaper, there was an advertisement. And in this advertisement, there was a note about people being troubled about election and predestination. And the advertisement said, Are you troubled about election and predestination? If so, write for a book. And the book was called Predestined to Hell by one, a man called John R. Wright. Well, when I went home, I discovered uh, that Pilgrim Publications have been continuing their magnificent work of republishing the sermons of Spurgeon. And I began to read the dust jackets. And inside one of the dust jackets, was an, uh, a very hearty commendation by one John R. Wright. So I thought, well, that's very subtle, very wise. Uh, let uh, Spurgeon's sermons be spread round the globe to everyone. And who knows that Brother Wright may yet come to thank Spurgeon that he has now been constrained to withdraw his book uh, against predestination uh, and election. Well, there is no doubt about what Spurgeon believes concerning these things. Said Spurgeon, I question whether we have preached the whole counsel of God unless predestination with all its, solemn, uh, uh, all its solemnity and sureness be continually declared, unless election be boldly and nakedly taught as being one of the truths revealed of God. It is the minister's duty, beginning from this fountainhead, 
to trace all the other streams, dwelling on effectual calling, maintaining justification by faith, insisting upon the certain perseverance of the believer, and so on. Now, so far, 37 volumes of the 56 volumes have been reprinted. And I would say that Spurgeon is the most widely read reformed author today. He may be the most widely read evangelical author today. And uh, if we likened um, the leaders in literature to the mile event on the track, we might say that as Spurgeon was finishing, about one lap behind would come Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just taking over from A.W. Pink. But uh, you may have a different view of this matter. I would say they are the most popular uh, reformed authors today, the most widely read. Now, Spurgeon uh, was called Puritanus Ultimus, the last of the Puritans. But again, uh, I think that that was not quite right because Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has consistently advocated the Puritans. And I'll have further to say about the matter of the Puritans presently. Well, there are these sermons, uh, and when they are completed, I have no doubt that they will have a tremendous impact in many ministries. Not only have we the sermons, but we have 25 other volumes by Spurgeon, not to speak of his seven-volume commentary on the Psalms. He also edited the Sword and Trial. Now, I wonder how many here have read the modern books about Spurgeon. I wonder who has read the early years, since it's a popular practice in America to ask for hands up. Could you please put your hand up if you've read the early years? Right up so we can see it. Well, that's magnificent. Who's read the full harvest? Well, a little way to go. I see Mr. Bill Clark's hand right up. Amazing student. Well done, Mr. Clark. I wonder how many of you have read that excellent study by Ian Murray, The Forgotten Spurgeon. Hand up. Well, excellent. So I don't have to tell you about Spurgeon's life or how Mr. Murray divides his life, which I think is very good. A preface, the pastorate at Waterbeach and so on, and then coming to London, the first controversy over Calvinism, 1855 to 1860, then the body of his life, and from the main part of his life, from which sprang uh, mighty works such as the orphanage, planting of churches, all his literature work, uh, the continuation of the pilgrim's home for old people, and um, much more besides, not to mention the college. And then the final years, the last few years, 1887, the downgrade, and his death in 1892. Now, the difficulty with Spurgeon is that he is claimed by both sides. Says Eric Hayden in his History of Spurgeon's Tabernacle, Spurgeon believed in election but refused to be labelled a Calvinist. Well, I think we're going to have controversy about this matter. And, and providing we remember how Spurgeon conducted his controversy, that is, with all love and charity, we should never be anything else but truthful and kind. We should never be bitter. And we should always pray for our brethren because we ourselves were bitter opponents of Calvinism. I hated Calvinism. 
at one stage. And labelled everybody that was a Calvinist a hyper. And then I really painted him in the blackest uh, colours possible. Well now, he believed, says Eric Hayden, in election but refused to be labelled a Calvinist. Yes, we find Spurgeon in opening the tabernacle said, quote, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. And he declared what he meant in the foreword of the first volume of New Park Street Sermons. He says this, It is our firm belief that what is commonly called Calvinism is neither more or less than the good old gospel of the Puritans, the martyrs, the apostles, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So much then for an introduction. Now we must come uh, to the following outline. First I want to sketch how Spurgeon came to Calvinism and I've chosen the points because of the application. How have you come uh, to Calvinism? How did Spurgeon come to Calvinism? A sketch of how he came, the factors in his coming to Calvinism. Second point, the strengths and weaknesses of Spurgeon's Calvinism. There were strengths in his Calvinism. There were also weaknesses in his Calvinism. And thirdly, and you won't um, need air to keep you alive, I hope, at this point and alert, the very controversial matter of Spurgeon's Calvinism and the altar call, uh, because there are those who claim Spurgeon as one who upheld the altar call. Well, we should seek to get light on that matter from Spurgeon himself, and then fourthly, uh, to draw out some lessons. First of all then, a sketch of how Spurgeon came to Calvinism. It began when he was a baby, just over a year old. Do you believe that? Well, Spurgeon was a very intelligent baby. <laughs> and uh, in the providence of God, he was sent to his grandparents. You know, uh, Spurgeon was very much like Timothy. We read in 2 Timothy 1 and 5 uh, that uh, Paul was exceedingly pleased about Eunice, the mother of Timothy, and his grandmama, uh, that is Louis. Well, Spurgeon was exceedingly blessed in his parents and grandparents, and it seems that he loved his grandparents as much as his parents. He just adored his granddadder and his grandmama. And they got to work on Spurgeon from the year of one year and following. And they taught him the truth. And we can see the importance of mothers and grandmamas. And any grandmamas here, and there are some, I see one up there who's celebrating her anniversary today, uh, I would remind you that you may be nursing a Spurgeon one of these days. And you must teach him Puritan truth right from the very beginning and teach it warm with lots of application. And who knows uh, what will come forth under the grace of God. I cannot overestimate the importance of teaching our children, catechizing them, but not in a dull, drab way. This is a living thing and we should do all in our power to have the most lively prayer meetings in the home, the most precious times in the home. And this is where Spurgeon was nourished, uh, having his uh, holidays at Stambourne with his grandparents and also, of course, in the home of his Christian parents. And we read that it didn't take him very long uh, to discover uh, the Puritans. This is what he says. 
that he went and found these old books and he found them going round in sheepskins and goatskins. He liked them always in their original dress, not in the modern dress so much. And he says, out of that darkened room where they were kept, uh, those old authors I fetched when I was a youth, and never was I happier than when in their company. Notice the following prophecy. Out of the present contempt into which Puritanism has fallen, many brave hearts and true will fetch it by the help of God ere many years have passed. Those who have daubed up the windows will yet be surprised to see heaven's light beaming on the old truth and then breaking forth from it to their own confusion. Well, Spurgeon soon saw the value of the Puritan authors and never did he fail to build up his Puritan library until it was 12,000 strong, all the books in his library. And it was said of him that you could switch off the lights and uh, ask him to fetch a volume and he could get it out in the dark. That's how well he loved his books. But of course he wasn't converted yet, he was only being taught, prepared. And Spurgeon himself says that when he was a a, a pupil assistant at Newmarket, there was a very stout lady there, a lady of uh, some physical proportions, but also of very considerable theological proportions. And he confesses that he learned a great deal of his theology from the cook. Well, I've tried to encourage the grandmamas tonight, but there are a lot of cooks here as well. And I've never tasted such good cooking until I came to America. And the cook taught him a great deal about Calvinism. He had these discussions with the cook. And we must always seek to have profitable discussions and to seek to enter into the details concerning our faith. And when we meet those who reject Calvinism, let us try and win them in a warm kind of fashion, as did that cook. Remember Abraham Kuyper, Uh, He was a liberal, but in his congregation there was a lady who contended for the truth. And it was by her that Abraham Kuyper, who became Prime Minister of Holland, that he came uh, to Calvinism. And I was speaking to Brother Drew Garner uh, this week, and he was telling me that uh, a man challenged him and his wife all in one week, and in one week had both he and his wife searching the scriptures and finding these things to be served. So we have these many opportunities. Well, the cook took her opportunity with Spurgeon and made a mark upon him. No theological college, mind you, but he learned his theology from his forefathers, of course, and the cook. Also, conviction of sin played a tremendous role in Spurgeon Calvinism. Says he, quote, There is a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have grown deeply because they see what grievous sinners they are. And I believe that Spurgeon drew his power all through the year from conviction of sin. He felt the depths of his sin and depravity and he appreciated the glories of sovereign grace as a result. Well, how did he come? Well, we are told by Spurgeon that when he actually came to the doctrines, he came in a flash, in the flash of a moment. 
Well can I remember, he said, the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant, born as all of us are by nature and Arminian, I still believed the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths in my own soul when they were, as John Bunyan says, burned into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown up on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge. Now, how have we come to Calvinism? Have these doctrines been burned into our hearts? Are they precious to us? You look at the great hymn writers, you look at the great preachers of history, Joseph Hart, John Newton, Brainerd, Edwards, Bunyan, Luther. These men were deeply convicted of their sins and out of that conviction came to understand the doctrines of sovereign grace. And Spurgeon, having come to these doctrines, never departed from them. Uh, when he went to, to New Park Street, he reprinted the 1689 Confession of Faith, which shows what he believed. In 1861, when the Metropolitan Tabernacle was opened, there was a series of sermons on the five points of Calvinism. Uh, I was just thinking today that um, uh, if I was alive then, I would have contended with Spurgeon if I'd had the privilege of being a member of his church and suggested that there is a much better way than the five points of Calvinism. Ever so many books have been written on the five points of Calvinism. But the five points of Paul, you know, are much better than the five points of thought commonly attributed to Calvin. I could give you ten good reasons why the five points of Paul are better than the five points of Calvin. Uh, you'll find them, incidentally, uh, at uh, the pinnacle of Paul's argument about justification in Romans chapter 8. But I can't stop with that now. I'll give you the ten reasons some other time. But I assure you uh, that those five points are far better for convincing people about the truth than the common approach. Well, I would also say that Spurgeon's Calvin, Calvinism in later volumes is just as clear as in the earlier volumes. Some of the statements may not be as strong because he wasn't involved in the controversy in the same way. But there is quality right through from the beginning up to 1917. I have a student friend in Cambridge who's helped me a lot with this paper. He's just completing a doctorate on Spurgeon's soteriology. I think he's unique in the particular field of study that he's approached. And he's read every word of the 56 volumes and nearly everything else besides. And I'm able to phone him from Sussex and I'm able to say to him, well now brother, will you please tell me all the references on the invitation system? He says, well I'll phone you back at such and such a time and I can be sure that I've got those references reliably. But I haven't read through all the 56 volumes, and I guarantee there's no hand that would go up here that has. But he kept on right to the end, clear in all his statements on the truth. And one contemporary toward the end of Spurgeon's ministry criticised him and said, 
uh, rather grudgingly, Mr. Spurgeon has succeeded in spite of his Calvinism. And then he had the audacity, if you please, to liken Spurgeon to a camel. He didn't look like a camel. He wasn't a pretty man. My wife refuses to have a bust of Spurgeon because he says, she says he was so ugly. But I think it's because she's afraid of idolatry. We don't worship the, ma- the Virgin, nor do we worship Mr. Spurgeon. But um, this man said he was like a camel. And um, he just carried this big hump on his back of Calvinism. He would have done much better without the hump. But you know, Spurgeon was a very witty man and a very astute student of nature. And uh, he came back with the reply, with the retort, uh, that uh, the Arabs know uh, that the hump makes the camel. And uh, Calvinism, he said, is the spiritual meat which enables a man to labour on. So if you haven't got a hump, you're not going to last it. So you better feel for your hump to see how solid your hump is. Well, now, we must go on from there to deal with the strengths and weaknesses of Spurgeon's Calvinism. Uh, It's rather difficult uh, to point out uh, the weaknesses of a great man, but there is an absolute necessity for analysis today. Many of us have fought a battle for our lives, starting from scratch, planting churches, building up churches from the foundation, in an atmosphere altogether hostile to the doctrines of grace. And we've had to analyse everything and uh, go through everything once more and test every inch of the way. And it's fatal if we accept a man's weaknesses and enlarge those weaknesses ourselves and excuse many wrong practices because of another man's weaknesses. If he was living today, he might have condemned those things out of hand. But let's first deal with his strengths. And you know it's possible in a very profitable exercise to look at the Calvinism of various men. Whitfield Calvinism, Edwards, Bunyan had a certain kind of Calvinism, and Daniel Rowland had a special kind of Calvinism, particular features and characteristics in his Calvinism. It's a very profitable study. So if some of you are seeking to write doctorates, this may be a suggestion for you. Now, the strength. I would say there is one, there was one major strength, and I'm speaking theologically now, out of which all the other strengths came with regard to C.H. Spurgeon. And that great strength was his Puritanism. I'm amazed when I study British history to find that political leaders nearly always are students of history, like Winston Churchill, great students of history. When we come to great preachers, we nearly always find that they advocate the Puritans. And Spurgeon was a Puritan. He loved the Puritans. He quoted Luther and Bunyan the most. Now, I don't know how often you quote the Puritans. Actually, Spurgeon read the Puritans, digested them, assimilated them, and then became his own modern contemporary Puritan. He preached in a very popular way these doctrines. He was a Puritan born out of time. But nevertheless, He quoted Thomas Brooks 14 times in those 56 volumes, Matthew Henry 14 times, and Richard Baxter 12 times. And there was in all his preaching and ministry a proportion, a beauty, a symmetry, a maturity, and a balance from which we can learn 
so much. And when it came to discerning the finer points of doctrine, Spurgeon had it. He knew the difference between responsibility and inability. He knew the difference between free agency and free will. He knew these things precisely and exactly and was careful in his terminology. And there were two areas in which Spurgeon was king of all the Puritans. And I love the Puritans myself. Several of them, like Jeremiah Burroughs, still need to have their complete works published in a proper form. Uh, I was interested to discover here in America, in Spurgeon's library, I didn't go there myself, but I got a list of the books, that Spurgeon spotted that. And he has several of the manuscripts by Jeremiah Burroughs. But Spurgeon, in my view, exceeds the Puritans and is king of all the Puritans in two areas. Number one, a popular presentation of the doctrines of grace to the common man, to the working class community. If anything was needed in Britain today, it is preachers who are able to preach the doctrines of grace to the working class community that are almost entirely outside the church. That's what we need. And Spurgeon was electric. He just held these people spellbound, aristocrats or workers off the streets. He held them all in the popular presentation of Puritanism, of Puritan doctrine. And the other thing was the free offers of the gospel. Recently I made a study of the subject and read up all that I could among the Puritans on the presentation of the free offer. Then I turned to Spurgeon and he is king of them all. Wonderful proportion, wonderful consistency, never denies the doctrine, but wonderful presentation of the free offers of the gospel. Nor does he wait till the end of his sermon for the free offers of the gospel. At any point, he makes his application most sweetly to present the overtures of Jesus Christ. So much then for the strength. How about the weaknesses? of Spurgeon's Calvinism. Well, strangely enough, if you look up for sermons on the moral law, the Ten Commandments, I don't think you'll find them there. Very few. Why did he neglect preaching on the Ten Commandments? I can say that I've seen more souls converted under my ministry through systematic preaching on the Ten Commandments than anything else. And I know a brother in Cape Town, incidentally, uh, I heard uh, just the other day that the two uh, great areas of development in the world are Houston and Kaysan. So you see there is good things to be found in the South. But uh, we see that uh, in this matter of weaknesses, I was telling you about this brother in Kaysan. He came back from our annual reform conference and he was in a very low spirit when he went to the conference, came back as I hope you will return to your churches filled with enthusiasm. And somebody had made a suggestion he should try preaching through the moral law. And he did that. And there was tremendous opposition in the Roman Catholic area. People threw eggs at his church, at his notice board, uh, they split tires on the car, and that church began to fill up. I was, I was preaching there, it was packed. There was a real spirit of power, of the presence of God in that man's church. And the turning point came when he began to preach systematically through the Ten Commandments. Why didn't Spurgeon do that? Well, many reasons 
can be suggested, but one of the main ones was this, that he himself had suffered so tremendously, almost torment under the Ten Commandments that he was learned to take other people through it. He said, the Ten Commandments were those black horses and the justice of God like a plowshare tore my spirit. I was condemned, helpless, hopeless. I thought hell was before me. And sensing that he didn't do this, he says, of many thousands, that is the soul converted under his ministry, a considerable proportion was not won by legal terrorism. Well, there is a power in a man's ministry concerning the holiness and majesty of God, even in a man's bearing, in a man's presentation, that people will come under a conviction of sin by that means. It was said of Murray McShane, that his very presence convicted people of sin. Well, I believe that this was true in Spurgeon's ministry. I've also spoken to people who listen to Spurgeon preach. I spoke to an elderly trustee of our church who used to uh, listen to Spurgeon. And he said it was like a bell, a clear sounding bell, note after note, going up over that congregation. But he also said something else, that when Spurgeon came onto that corpus, onto that rostrum, there was a holy silence, a hush, and he would bow his head before God, and the Spirit of God would be present as he prayed to the Lord God of heaven. You know, we need that today. So, you can understand that we lessoners have to get that plowshare out. We have to plow up and down, plowing away, because we need to see ourselves convinced of sin, and thank God many of us are, and this is we do derive strength from these deep convictions that our congregations need the moral law, the Ten Commandments. We dare not emulate Spurgeon in this matter. What he could do, we cannot do, and we must surely emphasize the Ten Commandments. Most the Puritans, I would say, concentrated on this area, and they won their converts by the moral law. They knew how to wield the law. As has been said today, we need to make sinners. Oh, for sinners, show me dying sinners that know they die, and then I shall preach the gospel most eloquently to them. Oh, for sinners today. Oh, for the whole world to become sinners that they all might see that they are lost. Well, that was a, a, maybe a smaller matter. But there is something else that we see as a weakness in Spurgeon's Calvinism, and it was this. A lack of system in his expository preaching. Certainly, he went verse by verse uh, in reading through past the scripture. But he did not use the systematic method. Sometimes he got his text from his wife on a Saturday night. Sometimes he was very worried because it was late and he still didn't have his text. They say, wifey, I need some help. I haven't got my text yet. Well, we lesser men dare not do such a thing. I start with my text maybe Tuesday, sometimes Monday, if I'm consistent, Tuesday. But rarely months before because of a systematic expository approach. And we in an age of chaos 
and darkness and ignorance and confusion, we cannot possibly afford to follow the scrambled egg method. I don't mind scrambled egg from Spurgeon. Thank you very much. He cooked it well. But I don't like scrambled egg from modern preachers. I like to see real proportion and study and order because we need that. We have to think about recreating order in a world of disorder. So let us not follow him in that. Let's go back to his sources. Go back to the Puritans themselves. And they were systematic and expository. Preaching through books. Preaching through passages. And then also, Spurgeon seemed to lack a definitive insight in matters of controversy. He didn't have all the gifts. We thank God for the amazing gifts that he did have. But he didn't have the gift, for instance, of John Kennedy of Dingwall. Uh, Spurgeon was an exceedingly generous and warm-hearted man. And when Moody and Sankey came to London, he was very generous indeed. But the dar old Kennedy was far, far from generous. He used his brain. He used his definitive insight. And I thank God for Kennedy. I thank God for those dear old Scotsmen. Why? They, some of them, they could divide a hair. I tell you, they can point to the very point of a needle. And we need such men. Now, when Moody went to Scotland, Kennedy saw right through the whole affair. And he pointed out what was going to happen. And he has proved to be correct right down the line. From A to Z, he's right. And what did he say? Well, just some of his headings. No pains, he said, are taken with these preachers to present the character and claims of God as lawgiver and judge. And no indication given of a desire to bring souls into self-condemnation. To accept the punishment of their iniquity. The conviction of sin going out the window. He also said, this preaching ignores the sovereignty and power of God in the dispensation of his grace. No care is taken to show in the light of the doctrine of the cross how God is glorified in the salvation of a sinner. And no precaution is offered against the tendency to antinomianism in those who profess to have believed and how easily we have come to profess. Well, Spurgeon didn't have that. He didn't have that definitive insight. And we cannot afford to be without definitive insight. We must be sharp. We've got a great battle to fight today. We need Spurgeon's gifts, but we need Kennedy's also in our modern day. Well, we come on to Spurgeon's Calvinism and the altar call. Again, in a book edited by Eric Hagen, Searchlight on Spurgeon, he gives, page 7, he gives the general impression that Spurgeon would endorse the altar call practice, the invitation system, calling for decisions, that he would endorse that today. And this is the most relevant subject. It is my view that without the present Calvinistic movement, reform movement, free grace movement, without we would run straight into another dark age. I am convinced of that. We are literally being drowned in a sea of subjectivism. And what is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's the idea that we control God in regeneration. Decisional regeneration is the order of the day. And our charismatic friends, 
seems to think that they can con- control God in revival, in the gifts of the Spirit, but they cannot. These outpourings which we read of in Acts, they came from heaven spontaneous, out of heaven. God alone is the author of revival. We cannot organize a revival, nor can we organize regeneration. Spurgeon knew this. He knew it very well indeed. So how are we to analyze this? Again, in this way. Spurgeon saw clearly the difference between counseling distressed souls on the one hand and trying to manipulate regeneration on the other. And he was as warm to counseling distressed souls as the Puritans were as he was hostile to the idea that we can manipulate regeneration because we can't. He waxed eloquent on these matters. Notice how these two points come out in his lectures and in his preaching. Quote, It is shocking to think that there are ministers who have no method whatever for meeting the anxious. And if they do see here and there one, it is because of the courage of the seeker and not because of the earnestness of the pastor. There must, he says, going on, be no, no persuading to make a profession. But there should be every opportunity for doing so and no stumbling block placed in the way of hopeful minds. Now, we can be increases of extremes, swing from one extreme to the other. And we can be so aloof and so apart that we are not among our people. We have after church meetings when we seek to go into these matters further. Certainly, Spurgeon had people come down afterwards. They stayed behind when everybody else had gone and there would be counselling about spiritual matters afterwards. Certainly, but the Puritans were masters in the whole area of counselling and guiding distressed souls, which is a very different matter to manipulating regeneration. He says again, it may be a very wise thing to invite persons who are under concern of souls to come apart from the rest of the congregation and have conversation with godly people. But if ever we should see that a notion is fashioning itself, that there is something to be got in the private room, which is not to be had at once in the assembly, or God is more at that penitent form or altar form than elsewhere, aim a blow, he says, at that notion at once. We must not come back by a rapid march to the old way of altars and confessionals and have Romish trumpery restored. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? Well, he goes on to put it another way. This is, this is in his preaching. He made it plain. Not only to his students, he made it plain in his preaching. Oh, now look, look, look again how he preached. Oh, he said, oh, that you would trust in the Lord Jesus. There may be some unconverted souls here tonight. Oh, that you would trust in the Lord Jesus. Did I hear you say... I will pray about Better trust at once. Pray as much as you like after you have trusted. But what is the good of unbelieving prayer? I will talk with a godly man after the service. I charge you first trust in Jesus. Go home trusting in Jesus. Or I should like to go into the inquiry room. I dare say you would. But we are not willing to 
pander to popular superstitions. We fear that in those rooms men are warmed into a fictitious confidence. Very few of the supposed converts of inquiry rooms turn out well. Go to your God at once, even where you are now. Cast yourself on Christ now, at once, ere you stir an inch. In God's name I charge you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. There was nothing more powerful in Spurgeon's ministry than his preaching. And he had nothing more than that to add. If they weren't converted under the preaching, well, he had no other divine. Do we have such a view of preaching? I could give you many quotes, but I'm going to refrain. To show that Spurgeon was crystal clear from first to last. That regeneration comes first. Another way in which we can present the doctrines of grace. You don't need five, you only need one. You know that David only used one of the five stones. Well, you can use total depravity stone if you like, but you can take this one. Regeneration comes before repentance and faith. And you know that great Colossus, that great giant of Goliath, Arminianus, he just goes down. Back. When you get this, regeneration is first. Sinner, unconverted sinner, Christ Virgin, I warn thee, thou canst never cause thyself to be born again. And though the new birth is, and though the new birth is absolutely impossible to thee, it is impossible, except the Spirit of God shall do it. Many quotations. I will refrain from proving. I could prove it in many ways, from the first volume to the last. He had that. He exhorted faith. He would say in his preaching many times, you say you're not born again. Well, what are you to do about it? Well, he would say, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. Study faith in him. Believe upon him. Directing always the sinner to Jesus Christ and to God in repentance. If only we got that right today. These altar pews or forms why, there would be no more pulp shortage, paper shortage that we're suffering from today. There'd be enough paper for all our men with all the penitent forms taken out to be pulped. If only we got this right. Regeneration is first. We cannot manipulate regeneration. Powerful preaching is required. It's through preaching of his own will, begat by the word of truth. It's by preaching. When the world is blessed again with powerful preaching, then we will see the souls coming forth. It's wonderful to see God at work. And they come forth themselves, not as, as a result of our miserable manipulation, but a result of God's sovereign act. Now the main lesson in conclusion. The main lesson from Spurgeon's Calvinism. You know, we ought to study the progress of the reform movement. Here in America we may trace it back perhaps to 1954-55 with the first Puritan reprint. But certainly in Britain we trace it back to 1957 and to the Banner of Truth books that first began to spread. But we shouldn't be complacent. Never be complacent. People often come and say to me, do you think the reformed movement is going to die? Well, of course it's not going to die. 
because God is permitting it. Now I've worked out that there are four stages that I see in the free grace movement, starting in 1957. In the beginning, it was individuals that came, one by one, all over the place. Imagine tiny little lights beginning uh, to, if you like, glow worms, that's an idea. Little tiny lights all over the place. But if you bring a whole lot of glow worms together, you might even get as much as an electric bulb, as much as that. So for about seven years, there were individuals coming to the free grace doctrine in different places, in many countries. But then in about 1964, something new began to develop. And you know what that, that was? The gathering of churches. These people began to find each other. And they began to say, well, when we come together, what do we do? And they are rediscovering the doctrine of the church. And we can't get away from it. We don't want to be controversialists, but it's a fact. We are rediscovering the doctrine of the church. How is a church led? How is it taught? How is it fed? How is it disciplined? How is it ordered? These people are coming together all over the place. The gathering of churches. And we are now beginning to enter another phase from about 1971. When the stronger churches begin to plant other churches. And you know... Spurgeon was a prolific church planter. I heard, I haven't had it verified, that south of the Thames alone he was instrumental, or partly instrumental, in 189 churches, just south of the Thames. Well, some of the stronger churches are beginning to see this. We have a vision, and I'll be quite plain about it, from Cookfield, of seeing churches planted from one end of Britain to the other. You say, that's big talk. It isn't big talk. It's a necessity. Because some of these great population centres have gone dark. You can go for a mile. You can go for 50 miles and find no reform preaching. Well, do you think we're going to just stand by and do nothing about it? Of course not. God is working and we must plant churches and pray for those churches and support those churches. And we must loosen some of those men to go full time so they can evangelize. But I see another stage developing. And I heard the sounding in the paper this morning, or shall I say in the preaching of Bill Clark. I can see the day fast coming when the vision isn't only for planting churches in the various cities that have gone dark, but planting churches overseas in other countries and round the world. And if we're going to do all these things, we'll never do them in our own strength. We never will. We'll need God himself with us. And that's mightily. And what is the main weapon? I'll tell you. It's preaching. All that Spurgeon ever achieved in literature, in the orphanage, in the college, in supporting old people, in all his good works and planting churches, everything can be traced back to one Thing, but one major thing in his life and that was unction in his preaching. He had God in his preaching and God being in his preaching people were brought to life. And the thing that grieves us so much today is this, that some of our preachers truly have an unction from heaven but the Spirit of God is not yet working in the congregation. They are not being overcome, I believe. That is, Spurgeon preached the kind of sermons we've been hearing at this conference. There would be very few people 
would dry up and the, and the converts would be numbered in the score. He could point to certain sermons and count his living, lasting notes, lasting converts by, convert by the score. God was not only in the preacher, but God was moving in the churches. Now we haven't got that. We are encouraged very much. Incidentally, my theology kills the fly. <laughs> First go. Must be the influence of John Kennedy. But the power of preaching. You know, we thank God that ministers are getting unction in their preaching. You know, there's just nothing left. I used to listen to Dr. Lloyd Jones, who I first heard it. First got hold of this idea, or first experienced it if you like. And sometimes on a Sunday evening, I felt like getting up being an impetuous South African by birth. I felt like getting up and saying, Go on, man! Why did you stop preaching? Don't you know my heart burning within Now we have power in preaching, and I believe it is increasing. But very few places, very few, where that same power is moving in the congregation. Few of them. And we must pray for that. And we need preaching that is biblical, expository, systematic, doctrinal, that is clear, crystal clear, applicatory, experimental, practical. All these things are important. That all is derived from purity. They were experimental. In eminently balanced, practical, application, expository, rich. This is how we ought to preach. Now, I close with this. If Spurgeon was here today at this International Grace or Free Grace Conference, if Spurgeon was here today and was able to sum up all that was going on and take a perspective view of the reform movement throughout the world, I wonder what his reaction would be. I wonder what he would have thought. Now we've got to be ever so careful when it comes to speculation. Some people have wrongly speculated. Says one author, if uh, Spurgeon was alive today, he would take his place beside the great ecumenical evangelist of our day. And I say, trash. <laughs> he died, literally, he died being faithful on the church issue. It killed him. Which doesn't mean to say that we ever have an excuse to be bitter to anybody or unkind to anybody personally who may be muddle-headed about this matter of ecumenism. But he died in that combat. So to say that he would take his place beside such a one is ridiculous. But we mustn't make false speculations. I would say this in closing that Spurgeon would be the most enterprising of all the modern Calvinists for spreading the doctrines of grace. The most far-seeing and the most enterprising. He was industrious. He'd even beat the Texans. How do you like that? Tremendous. Moreover, I believe he would have a great stress on unity among the Calvinists. Unity. And I believe he would hammer those who sought to divide the Calvinists. He was very clear, incidentally, about hyper-Calvinists. Oh, yes, they ha he had no trust for them. 
Uh, he, 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 made, he made as much, made it as hot for them, for the Hyphas, as he did for the Arminians. He, he's speaking now about those who do believe in the free offers of the gospel. He would strive for unity among the Calvinists. And I wonder if we strive for unity among the Calvinists and support one another. And you know you can prove whether you are like this by answering this question. Do you pray for other Calvinistic preachers? Do you not only pray for them personally, but you pray for the progress and prosperity of their churches? Do you pray for them? What is our emphasis on prayer? I believe we need a greater emphasis on prayer. Behind Spurgeon, the preacher was the man at prayer. And I'll give you a, a clue. He was as excited to listen to in prayer as he was in preaching. And his vision was unbound in his prayer. A tremendous man at prayer. And particularly in the New Park Street era or age, there were tremendous prayer meetings, wonderful prayer meetings. Spurgeon speaks of them in the most glowing terms. Ministers here today, can you speak in glowing terms about your prayer meeting, your church prayer meeting? Is it the meeting of the week? Is the glory of God? Is the Shekinah glory in your prayer meeting? Does God come down on Saturday night to ensure that he's with you on Sunday morning? How is it with you in your prayer meeting? Behind Spurgeon the preacher, Spurgeon the intercessor, well, we should pray for one another and pray that these doctrines will spread throughout all the earth, that the whole earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea and churches springing up in every country, properly all, edified, blessed, and used to the salvation of multitudes of people. Spurgeon prophesied our day. He saw it afar off. He prophesied. He would be thrilled to see it coming to pass. And he would be thrilled to see us in a true, warm-hearted bond and unity and in prayer together to his Lord and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, 
or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.